Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 42. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Please be seated. I read an article this week about some researchers who created a scenario. Uh, And in this scenario, what they did was they they grabbed a, a group of people together and they basically gave them a ball and they told everybody in the group except for one person, they said, hey, pass the ball around and have a good time, but do not pass it to this one person. Unbeknownst to that person, they had no idea that this was the instructions everybody else had received. And so as the ball is kind of happily being tossed around, imagine yourself being that person. Right? You, initially, you're just like, oh, you know what, like, it just hasn't come to me yet. And, and you're kind of faking a smile and, and, and you're playing along. Maybe you move in a little bit towards the center so that people notice you a little bit more. And, and over time, you're realizing, I'm never going to get the ball. And, and as, you, as this kind of realization settles in, you begin to stop trying. What well, really didn't want to play anyways, right? And, and slowly but surely, you kind of give up. And researchers have done this and they actually discovered that the, the ostracized person, the person that was left out, will testify to an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose from this game. But I think what the game does is it just kind of pulls back the curtain on a fundamental desire. This fundamental desire that we all have for connection and communion. Now, loneliness has become an epidemic in Western culture. So much so that the United Kingdom has actually appointed a minister of loneliness to address the societal impact of this epidemic. A minister of loneliness. And so the question that we are are faced with, with our society and with this text of Scripture is, what do we do with the loneliness of our longing for connection and communion? 
Or you can even say, what do we do with our disappointed desires for anything for that matter? And what I love about the Psalms is that they're a paradigm for the deepest longings and yearnings of the human soul. And, and so as we look at this psalm and, and all the other psalms, we realize that they, they give voice to the varieties and extremities of, ex, of human experience. And as we look at Psalm 42 together, I want to ask this one question. This is the main point. This is all my subpoints right here. This one question. How do we take our longing through lament toward love? How do we take our longing through lament toward love? And those are going to be the three main points, longing, lament, and love. So now as we turn to Psalm 42, um, as we read through it and hear it and read it ourselves, we'll notice that verses 5 and 11 kind of function as this refrain. It's repeated twice in this psalm and actually once more in Psalm 43 right after it. And so verse 5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And as I was studying the psalm, I was asking the same question. I was wondering, what's wrong with the psalmist? Why is the psalmist's soul so troubled? And while we're not giving a really specific answer to that question, um, I want to kind of look at the text together and notice some things, make some observations. But this is what I think is wrong. I think the psalmist is suffering with unmet desire. I think he's languishing with his longings. And so as we look at the psalm together, uh, I'm just going to make some observations, and you can kind of come to your own conclusion as to what is wrong with the psalmist. Why is his soul so troubled? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the psalm begins by evoking in our imagination this, this picture of a deer searching for water. And, and this deer is panting because it's thirsty. Not like the kind of thirsty that you and I get when we walk from our car to Publix in Orlando in June. But this is a thirst where if the deer doesn't find a source of water quickly, it's going to pass out and potentially die. But the deer has this instinctive thirst. It knows what it needs to survive, which is cool, clear, flowing water. Likewise, the psalmist makes a comparison. The psalmist is saying that all human beings have this instinct, this thirst for God. In a novel by Bruce Marshall, he tells a story about a Catholic priest named Father Smith. And Father Smith was, was walking home one day, and he passed by a seductive young woman standing on her porch who was evidently a prostitute. And as he's walking, uh, she says to the priest, she says, hey, so tell me, do you get much response to the old, old story these days? She didn't even try to hide that she found Christianity to be completely irrelevant. But she had some questions. She said to the priest, uh, I've been dying to meet a, a priest, but for some reason they never tend to show up at the parties I go to. And as the priest invites her to join him on his walk to his next appointment, she begins berating him with question after question after question. One question she asks is this, how do you, being a priest, manage to, as she put it, live without us? To which the priest replied, 
The man who knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. And the psalmist is agreeing here. He knows this, that the deepest desire of the human heart is for God. And yet that desire finds outlets in various different ways. But we, we see that the desire of the psalmist here is not just for any God. It's for the living God, as, as verse 2 says. And so the psalmist knows that only the living God will assuage his thirst, not the dry wells of idolatry. And as the psalmist is pouring out his desperate longing for God, we see that he's almost at the point where the deer is, where if he doesn't get a taste of God, if he doesn't get his thirst quenched by God, he may just die. So we can say that the first problem, the first thing that's troubling the psalmist's soul is that he's longing for the presence of an absent God. He's longing for the presence of an absent God, but he's not the only person who's noticed the apparent absence of God. In fact, in verses 3 and 10, if you look, you'll see that he's got adversaries that are using this to provoke him. Verse 10 reads like this, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Just an aside, I think verse 10 is a biblical proof text that the story, or the, the, the little nursery rhyme, or whatever you want to call it, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that that's a flat lie, right? I mean, here he literally says the damage of words is about as bad, if not worse, than a deadly wound in my bones. And so I know that many of us have been wounded by words that were lashed at us by tongues long ago. And we've taken those into our soul and they trouble us to this day. And that's going on with the psalmist. So much so that in verse 9, it looks like he actually begins to believe it. He says this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so he feels forgotten, lonely, and longing for the God who's forsaken him. Now, this trouble that he experiences because he yearns for the presence of an absent God, but to to make matters worse, he's got some adversaries that are kind of rubbing his nose in it. But that's not all. Look with me at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. So for some reason, he's not in Jerusalem where the temple is. He may be in exile. A lot of people believe this was written when the Israelites were taken into exile. That's a possibility, but we don't know from the text. But for some reason, we know he's not at home. And and he longs to be home. He longs to be in his place with his people. And we all can share in this longing. We all long for the familiarity, the security of familiarity. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Where they're always glad you came. Somebody should write a song about this. It's just this longing for home that we all have. But often our our hunger for home is hindered. Just like the psalmists here. So finally, because he's alienated from home where he belongs, he's not in Jerusalem, which also means he's cut off from worshiping in community. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. 
in an article entitled The Opposite of Loneliness, Marina Keegan wrote this, Why do, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. This elusive, indefinable opposite of loneliness. It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together. I'd say that's pretty close to what the psalmist is longing for here. The opposite of loneliness. He wants to worship God, yes. But he wants to do it with others. He doesn't want to be alone. He misses gathering with the congregation like we're doing right here, right now. He misses leading them in worship. He misses all the glad shouts and praise songs. He misses the whole multitude of worshipers gathered together who are, in Keegan's words, in this together. This is a real gift that we get to gather here on Sunday mornings to worship together. So to kind of recap, why is the psalmist's soul so troubled? Because he's longing for his place, his home, his people, and his God. He's languishing with longing. He's suffering with frustrated desire. And so what I want to do for the rest of this is I want to look at what do we do with the pain of our disappointed desires? What do we do with the pain of our disappointed desires? Well, before we get to what we ought to do, I want to look at two potential pitfalls, two kind of false solutions. Now, the first one is denial. The second one is despair. So let's look at denial first. This, this first kind of dangerous way of dealing with our unmet desires is denial, the, the refusal to acknowledge both the desire and the pain that it causes when it's not met. Believe it or not, pain is actually a gift. Um, my grandfather recently was hospitalized and almost died because he had his appendix ruptured and he lived with it ruptured for multiple days. Now, because of other health problems, my grandfather has this pain pump that's embedded in him that constantly pumps medication through his body to alleviate from pain. So for most people, if your appendix becomes a problem, and especially if it ruptures, you will be struck with an unbearable amount of pain, and you'll immediately be cued, hey, something's probably wrong here. But for him, medicated from his pain, uh, it didn't happen until he passed out and my grandma had to call 911, and they brought him into the hospital and realized he had had a ruptured appendix for maybe a week. It almost killed him. And so rather than feeling the pain of a ruptured appendix, he almost died for lack of pain. And so when we suffer the thirst of unquenched desires, we usually try anything we can do to deaden the pain, not realizing that pain itself is actually a gift. So we end up turning to various things to alleviate the pain. Oftentimes this results in addiction. I mean, you could simplify, and, and this is a simplistic definition, but you could define addiction as the deadening of our desires, the denial to live with the pain of a fallen world. And so this is what Father Smith was talking about when he said the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really knocking for God. He's trying to deaden his desires at the door of the brothel, but really what he longs for is to meet God. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are you there? Have you let your longings linger over lesser things? Have you kind of sipped on mud puddles uh, instead of feeling the agony of your thirst for God? I know I have. And I'm thankful for Psalm 32, 42, excuse me, because it calls us away from denial towards something more. So if it's not denying our desire, some of us are, are tempted to deal with our unmet desires through despair. Through despair. This is when we give up hope because it's too painful to hold on to longing. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Not all, but some depression is this heart sickness. That, that sickness of heart that comes from hoping for something that becomes postponed and then postponed again and potentially indefinitely, if not forever, outside of our grasp. That frustrated desire can result in despair and depression. Now, I encourage you to look this up because it really is fascinating, but there's a video on YouTube of an experiment that some Harvard psychologists have done. It's called the Still Face Experiment. The Still Face Experiment. And basically what it is, is a mother and her, and her baby are smiling and interacting and playing with one another. And then part of the experiment is the mother's face is to go completely flat, unresponsive, totally still. And as the baby looks into the eyes of its mother and is expecting some sort of response, it begins to go through stage after stage after stage of trying to get the mother's attention again. And eventually squealing and squirming, the baby just resolves that there's no way that she'll ever experience the smile of her mother's face. And the baby slips into despair. It's a heart-wrenching video of this desire that we have for connection and communion. And we see it even at the form, in the smallest form of an infant. Now, as a counselor, I've learned the most about suffering unmet desired from men and women with same-sex attraction. Men and women who have same-sex attraction that are convicted that in order to uh, follow Jesus, that allegiance to Jesus requires celibacy for everyone outside of marriage. But I've also learned a lot from men and women who suffer with their singleness. From women who have borne the burden of infertility. From men who, no matter what they give themselves to, seem to constantly be thwarted. We know this. We know what it's like to have our desires frustrated. And the temptation towards despair creeps in and, and tells us to just kind of give up longing. Stop craving. Set your expectations a little lower. And so instead of despair, and instead of denial, what do we do with the pain of unmet desires? We lament. We lament. We lift our longings to the Lord, crying out to him in our pain. This is not easy work. 
So what I'm going to invite you to do is to join me as we apprentice ourselves to the psalmist as he teaches us the art of lamentation. Now there's three skills of lament that I'm just going to pull out. There's more, but there's just three that I want to focus on. These kind of three skills of lament that that we learn from Psalm 42. The first one is pour yourself out. The second one is hear yourself out. And the third one is talk yourself up. The first one is pour yourself out, hear yourself out, talk yourself up. Pour yourself out. Look at verse four with me. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. This is an image of taking yourself like a pitcher and pouring out your inner life before God. It's when we splash every last drop of our soul before the Lord. And as you do this, um, you're going to realize you're telling him things that he already knows. Jesus tells us that, that he knows our cares before we even ask him. So why do it? I'm helped by C.S. Lewis when he points out, God indeed knows our desires without an utterance from the lips. When one speaks of them, however, an unveiling occurs. One goes from being a thing known by observation to a person known by self-disclosure. A professor of mine uh, is a, he's a psychologist, he's a researcher, and he researches the therapeutic benefits of uh, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. He's found in his research that although it is good and right, petitionary prayer, which is kind of asking God for things, it, it isn't actually therapeutically beneficial. It's not a bad thing, uh, but in and of itself, that, that act of praying and asking God for things doesn't benefit, benefit us therapeutically, as far as science can tell, right? But he said self-disclosing prayer is therapeutically beneficial, In other words, there's something about pouring our souls out before the Lord, telling him things as if he didn't already know them. We experience being known by God. And in being known, we're comforted and consoled. And so when you lament, you pour yourself out, but you also hear yourself out. Look with me again at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me. Now, it's, it's, there's a risk here in how you read these words. You could see him kind of taking his, scroll by the, his soul by the scruff of his neck and just being, why are you cast down? I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is gentle, prompting questions of himself, wondering, genuinely curious, as he asks, what is going on? Let me hear you out, soul. What's going on? Now, I grew up in, in Michigan, just outside of Detroit, and, and growing up, we had a hot tub, and we would use it year-round. And so we were those crazy people who would sit in our hot tub, and icicles would begin forming on our eyelashes and eyebrows as we sat in the hot tub. And sometimes when we had company over, um, I would try to impress them by jumping out, doing snow angels, and then jumping back in the hot tub, only to feel kind of like the dagger pain of hot water on cold skin, Right. And, and when I was growing up, my job, one of my chores was I was to take care of the hot tub. I was to make sure it, uh, the chemicals were right and I had to test it and all that stuff. And our hot tub had this function, this feature, where uh, in order to prevent mold from growing, every so often, randomly throughout the day, bubbles would turn on and the jets would blow and, and the water would be stirred up. Sometimes I'd go out there and I'd lift the cover and unbeknownst to me, the jets were going and and the water was all turbulent and stirring and spinning. 
but you wouldn't have known because the cover was on. And I think that a lot of us are like this. I think externally the cover's on and we're doing great. But internally there's a turbulence and a torrent of thoughts and feelings, things going on beneath the surface that nobody would ever know about. Maybe not even ourselves. And so what the psalmist is calling us to do, he's teaching us to check in and to listen to ourselves. Do we know what's going on inside us? Are we attentive to the stirrings of our souls? Our minds are chattering on incessantly. I wonder what your mind tells you when you stand in front of a mirror. I wonder what your mind tells you when you wake up in the morning. I wonder what your mind tells you when you receive criticism or even a compliment. These are kind of the the, the stirrings of the soul that the psalmist is speaking of here when he begins asking gentle questions with curiosity. What's going on beneath? More often, these thoughts and feelings, we're unaware of them. They fly under the radar and they disturb and disrupt us without our even knowing it. And so not only do we hear ourselves out, uh, not only do we pour ourselves out, but we also talk ourselves up. So the third point is you talk yourself up. Now, by talk yourself up, what I don't mean is standing in front of the mirror telling you how great you look. That's not what I mean. What I mean is learning to take your soul and talk yourself upward to hope. Upward towards hope that is outside of yourself. Look again at verse 5 with me. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Now, the old preachers used to call this soliloquy, this kind of art, this skill of self-conversation. The ability to talk to yourself, the ability to uh, talk yourself uh, out of certain things into other things. It isn't positive kind of self-talk. That's not what we're talking about here. It's this ability to stir up hope in our own souls. And it's a It's a skill. But it's, a, it's really an acknowledgement that truth comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. It's confidence that there's something more firm, more real, more true than the thoughts and feelings that we have stirring around inside of us all the time. And so the psalmist, who has learned not to depend, not to trust on his own feelings, his own internal state, he doesn't lean heavily on that anymore because he knows how fickle and fleeting it really is. I mean, in verse 3, we heard, uh, this is just an example. In verse 3, we heard that he's probably not eaten and probably not slept in a while. Now, we all know how much those kind of physical aspects of ourselves, they affect our psychological and our spiritual well-being. And the psalmist does as well, which is why he stirs himself to, to talks himself up outside of himself to hope in God. And as he engenders this hope, it enables him to see the world differently. A world that was devoid of God uh, actually looks a little bit more like God may be present and active despite his apparent absence. Now, this hope enables the psalmist to even see that his sea of sorrows are coming from the hand of God. Look with me at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice he says, your breakers, your waves have gone over me. 
He's acknowledging that wave after wave of pain and sorrow and near despair that have overwhelmed him, all of these waves, he's acknowledging that this suffering is part of the, the severe and sovereign mercy of God. I think Charles Spurgeon says it best. He says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. As we lament, we begin to see that our our suffering is actually, um, this disappointed desire that we experience is actually from the hand of a loving God. We realize, as St. Augustine said, that it is yearning that makes the heart deep. And as we yearn, as our longings go unmet and we, we bring them in lament before the Lord, they deepen us. They make us more capacious on the inside in order that the Lord might fill us and pour his love into us. So remember, I said, how do we go from longing through lament toward love? Toward love. Because it is only love as deep as our longings that can truly satisfy the desires of our hearts. And in verse 8, the psalmist points this out. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. Now verse 8 is the poetic center of the psalm. In a lot of ways, the psalm is kind of building towards verse 8. And what's interesting is uh, you see this picture here of a military commander telling certain troops to go here and other ones to go there. And likewise, the Lord commands and directs his love towards his people. Another thing that's interesting here is that this is the only time in the whole psalm that the psalmist refers to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. It shows up with four capital letters, L-O-R-D, but it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name that God revealed himself to his people with. Because that covenant name goes along with the covenant love that he's speaking of here. Covenant love, steadfast love, unfailing love, never giving up, never stopping, always and forever kind of love. This is the only kind of love that will really satisfy the psalmist's heart. And so as the psalmist hopes in God, he's stirring up a hope for this God who has promised to act on his behalf. And as we know, that God has acted. He has directed his love toward his people fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus steps on the scene, he talks a lot about thirst and desire and longing. When we see in John 4, he's at a a well with a woman who doesn't have the best reputation. And he says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. And later in John 7 in Jerusalem, he stands up during a feast kind of awkwardly. And he cries out to everybody, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But in order to offer this life-giving, thirst-quenching water, Jesus had to taste the dryness of death himself. He was exiled, cut off from his people, his place, and his God. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, arms stretched wide, he cried out this. He said, I thirst. And they came and they gave him a drink of water, but but the physical thirst was nothing in comparison to the soul thirst that he had from experiencing the absence of God. And so Jesus actually died with unfulfilled longings. But God, 
The one, as we saw earlier from Psalm 107, the one who satisfies the longing soul knew Jesus' longings. And God raised him from the dead and he poured out his life-giving spirit on him. And now Jesus, who's tasted the pain of unmet desire, sympathizes with us in our suffering. And when we get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus stands, arms wide out, beckoning, saying, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take from the water of life without payment, without price. So Jesus knows that we have desires too deep and longings too large that only the resurrection life that he offers us will fully and finally satisfy us. But... Not yet. Not yet. Not until Jesus comes back and makes all things new will we be freed from the pain of unmet desire. And so in the meantime, with the psalmist, we wait in hope. We wait in hope. We lament. As Romans 5 says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Spirit enables us to suffer our longings until we see Jesus face to face. And as we suffer well, we join our voices in the chorus of lament. Our souls are deepened, enabling us to be more and more filled with the love of God so that we can pour out that love on a groaning world as we wait, as we wait in hope for the living Lord of steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, our souls are panting even this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you have uncovered desires that may have been dormant for a while. Desires that have been denied or despaired of. Thirst for you, longing for you. I pray, Spirit, that you would stir up our souls, trouble us if you must, so that we might pant after you as a deer panting for flowing streams. Holy Spirit, pour the love of God into our hearts that we might see Jesus and that we might have hope, hope that does not put us to shame. We would wait, wait on the Lord for him to come and satisfy, to quench our thirst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.